Hey there, good morning. Welcome to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to welcome you here this morning, whether uh, it's your first time or whether you've been with us for a long time. So glad you're here this morning. If it it does happen to be your first time or your first time in a long time, uh, I'd especially uh, especially, especially want to extend a warm welcome to you and want to say that we have a gift for you uh, as a way to say welcome to our community. So if you didn't get it on your way in, please make sure to get it on your way out. You can come say hi to me. I'll be back below the exit sign there in the back and and we'd love to get you some local stuff for you to enjoy a little bit of taste of, uh, of Chatham County. So make sure you grab that on your way out. Hey, before I get into the sermon, uh, just want to address some things that have been happen- happening locally. Uh, in the last few weeks, three students from our local high school in Northwood have passed away. Uh, and um, I just want to acknowledge that that's devastating. Um, uh, we are connected to Northwood. We have folks here who went to Northwood, folks here who taught kids who ended up in Northwood. We have folks here who are alumni uh, from Northwood and folks here who currently attend Northwood and folks who are neighbors of people who are at Northwood. And our community is hurting right now. It's devastating uh, when lives are lost uh, at such a young age. Uh, and so we grieve with the families, and uh, we grieve with the loved ones, we grieve with the friends, we grieve with the community. And I just want to say that uh, we are available to any of you. If you need prayer, if you have questions, if you need to process, please come talk to me, talk to one of the other leaders here at our church. We are here for you, and we are grieving with our community. And I want to invite you to just join me in prayer for the Northwood community and for the families of Christian, Cassandra, and Tony as they uh, grieve their loss. So would you take a moment and pray with me? Lord, I pray that you as the God of comfort would sustain our community at this time, at this time when we are hurting, at this time when we have questions, at this time when we are oftentimes at a loss to know what to do or what to say. And I pray particularly for the families of Christian, Cassandra, and Tony, for the people who are close to them, the people who most acutely are feeling this loss right now. Would you be their strength? Would you be their comfort? Would you be the God who can take their questions, the God who can take whatever feelings they're feeling at this time, the God who is near? Would they know you as the one who is near at this time? Would they experience a sense of your love, a sense of your presence, a sense of your guidance? Lord, and would you lead us as a community and them as families in the path forward? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. Um, It's never uh, fun to shift from these somber things into the sermon, so I'm just going to acknowledge this is going to be an awkward shift as we dig into the sermon, so just roll with me. There was a movie that was released about 20 years ago. It was an independent romantic comedy called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And uh, a movie with that title has no business being as good as it was or being as big of a hit as it was. It was what's known as a sleeper hit, which means it was a movie that no one expected to do well. It wasn't advertised uh, or promoted with any expectation of it doing well, but it became the highest grossing romantic comedy uh, at the time. And it did that without ever being number one at the box office. 
It just had this sustained success, this word-of-mouth success that led it to become the highest-grossing romantic comedy. And the film has lots of memorable characters, lots of funny moments, as it should. It's a comedy. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the dynamics of cross-cultural relationships as a Greek family encounters a non-Greek family and the two, the two leads uh, start to court each other and get married. But a running gag in the movie that caught on, even became part of an advertising campaign and became part of the cultural vernacular for a season has to do with the father on the Greek side of the family. His name is Gus, and it has to do with a remedy he kept suggesting to deal with every single type of ailment. Whenever someone would talk about an ailment, particularly a skin ailment, it didn't matter what it was, Gus would pipe in and say, put some Windex on it. You have a rash, put some Windex on it. Psoriasis, put some Windex on it. A wart, put some Windex on it. Acne, put some Windex on it. It's meant to be funny because it's ridiculous. Uh, and you see it in the film. You get all the cues. The family rolls their eyes. People tune him out. And the passage we're going to read today can have a bit of a put some Windex on it feel to it. And I want to acknowledge that right now before any of us tune out or roll our eyes or stop paying attention because as we read the passage today, you're going to see some version of pray, connect to God, or turn to God show up over and over again in the passage. And you may be tempted to think, whatever, or that's just the religious thing to say, right? You know, oh, we'll pray or let's pray about it. But I want to invite you and I want to encourage you to resist that urge, to resist that urge to treat this like Windex. Because just because the same remedy is prescribed over and over again for different situations doesn't mean it's not the right one. Just because it's prescribed over and over again doesn't mean it's not the right one. And as we wrap our series, our integrated Faith and Life Together series, the idea that's being driven home by repeating this concept of praying or turning to God or connecting to God over and over again, the idea that's being driven home is that living in constant connection to God is the cornerstone of an integrated faith. Living in constant connection to God is the cornerstone of an integrated faith. That's the point that James is trying to get across in his last chapter. That's why he repeats pray or connect to God, why he alludes to connecting to God over and over again. Living in constant connection to God is the key to living out our following of Jesus day to day in every decision, both the big ones, the small ones, and everything in between. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to James chapter 5? It's the last chapter in the book of James. James is in the latter half of the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we're going to put it on the screen in just a second. We're going to read verses 13 through 20 of James chapter 5. And if you don't have access to a Bible, it's going to be on the screen in just a second. But here we go with James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer 
of a righteous person is powerful. It's effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. James in its entirety is a very practical book. It's very pragmatic. It's very concrete uh, on how faith gets lived out in the day to day. And as we've gone through the book of James over these last five, uh, four weeks and five, including this one, we've talked about doing good works and we've talked about how to get through hard times. We've talked about uh, 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 not showing favoritism. We've talked about how to manage our communication in ways that are life-giving rather than destructive. And there's even more stuff that we haven't covered uh, in terms of practicality and day-to-day ways of living out our faith. And because it has so much, it's so rich in application, in nuts and bolts, in practice, it could be easy, it could be easy to arrive at the conclusion that the core of integrating our faith into our life is all about doing better or trying harder to be good. There's so much practicality that one could conclude, well, it's all about just doing better and trying harder to be good. And there are many people, both inside and outside of faith, that try to live that way. They live their lives doing better and trying harder every day to be good. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing better or trying harder. But if we make faith all about that, if we make integrating our faith exclusively about that, then we've made it all about ourselves and what we can accomplish and what we can do. And frankly, to always try, to always be focused on doing better and trying harder in order to feel like we were doing well in our faith is exhausting. And it's defeating because hard as we try, we all have a day or days or weeks or for some of us years where we just don't get it right. Doesn't matter how hard we try, we can't seem to do better. We can't seem to get it right. So it's fitting then that after all this practical stuff, after all of this application, James makes sure to head that at the pass, to hedge that at the end and give us and, and address this impression that doing better and trying harder is the cornerstone of our faith. Because in this passage, what he basically says in every situation, stay connected to God. That's basically what he says. What he says is that whether you are at your highest high or your lowest low or anywhere in between, turn to God. Connect with him. If you're in trouble, pray to God connect with him. If you're happy, sing songs of praise, which is another way of prayer. Connect to God. If you're sick, get other people and pray to God. If you've messed up or you've walked away, turn to God. Connect with him. No matter what situation you're in, no matter what circumstance you're living in, Turn to the Lord. Come before the Lord is what it seems like James is saying over and over again. 
And here's why that's more than just a pat answer, right? Because oftentimes I'll pray for that or let's pray for that or we're going to pray for that can feel like a throwaway line in religious circles. Here's why it's not. Here's why this is an effective approach. Here's why this is key. Because when we come before the Lord, when we come before the Lord, when we turn to him, when we connect to him in our highest highs, our lowest lows, and everywhere in between, we get access to what he has to offer. And we have the opportunity to receive what we need. When we come to the Lord, we get access to what he has to offer. And we receive what we need. And the passage lays that out. If you're sick, you receive wellness. If you're down, you get lifted up. If you are sinning or have turned away from God and come back, you are forgiven and restored. If you are happy, you get greater delight. Now, I know that one is not explicit in the text, but I can speak to that from experience. A number of years ago, I had a colleague who whenever something good would happen or whenever someone would say that something good had happened, he would blurt out, bless the Lord, which is a prayer. And I started noticing as he was doing that around me that when I would say something good and he would say, bless the Lord, it would invite me to turn to God. It would remind me, oh yeah, God was in this. And I would feel my spirits lifted up. I would feel myself experiencing greater delight. And in fact, it, I appreciate it so much that I've sort of taken that on. And some of you have experienced that with me, that if you're saying something that's good or if something uh, nice happens, I will say, well, bless the Lord for that. And what I get to experience now, what I get to see is I get to see how people's spirits are lifted up even higher how people get to experience greater delight when in their moments of happiness, they are reminded that God is involved in that too. That God cares about our happy moments and that God's answer to our happy moments is to give us greater delight. You might think, well, it's, that's enough. I'm happy. But no, God says, here's more. Here's more delight. Here's more joy. Here's a greater sense that I am with you and I am doing this good Thing with you. God gives us even a little more. We receive what we need even in our happiest moments. Now, I don't want to just glance over what the passage says about healing. I want to address two questions that might come up or that we might be caused to wonder about in light of this passage. So the two issues that I think come up when we read this passage as it pertains to healing are one, what if any connection there is between healing and sin because the passage seems to connect them? And two, why isn't everyone healed all the time? Because the passage seems to make it pretty academic, right? If someone's sick, you get prayer and the person would be healed. So let's address those two. Let's start with the connection between sickness and sin. And here's where I get the connection. The passage says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That seems to paint a picture that sickness is connected to sin. So let's clarify that. So the first thing I want to say is that all brokenness in our world is connected to sin. All brokenness in our relationship with God, all brokenness in our world, all brokenness in our engagement with him, all brokenness in our bodies traces its origin, its starting point to humanity's choice to be independent from God. 
from that point on, all that brokenness into, uh, enters into our world. That's what in theological circles is known as the fall. It's one of the consequences of the fall. So in one way, in a very real way, all sickness is the result of sin. However, not every sickness we experience is a result of sin that we've committed. Not every sickness that we experience is caused by a sin we've committed. I want you to hear that really well because I don't want any of us to leave here thinking that or even sharing with people that if they're sick and they're not getting well, they must have a sin to confess. I am not saying that. That is not true. That is abusive language. Please do not use that and please do not believe that. The God, our God is good and that is not how he operates. However, however, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't physical ailments that are connected to personal sin. The passage seems to address that. The passage seems to indicate that at least in their communities, there were some sicknesses that were connected to the ways in which people were rebelling against God. It's as if the rebellion, the inner struggle against the one who is life and who is good is manifesting itself in physical ways. So there are times where there might be a connection. Uh, I'm going to tell a story, and I want you, I want to say right from the start that I'm changing significant details about the story uh, just because we record these sermons, and I want to protect the privacy of the people involved. But I know someone who had a, who had a family member who went through a long and debilitating illness where their body was turning against itself. It was e the body was eating itself from the inside out, you could say. And for years and years, they, they were slowly being debilitated. And the doctors could not explain why. And they could not figure out a cause. And they could not figure out a solution. This person was in some form of leadership, had influence. And there was lots of support coming in, lots of money coming in to, to, to get new treatments, to figure out ways to support this person. And, and this person, through their struggle, through their illness, started writing about how they were processing this suffering, how they were engaging with this illness, how they were turning to God, but it kept getting worse and worse and worse, and people would pray for healing, and nothing would happen. It kept getting worse and worse and worse, and I was at an event with my friend, and he got a call, and he left suddenly from the event, and a while later, I followed up, and he said, that call that call, as, as my relative was nearing the end of their life, was a call to call me home. And what happened when I came home was we found out that my relative had confessed to a double life. They had been keeping a secret life that they had been living. They had been living contrary to God for this long, long, long time, and they finally unburdened themselves and confessed that. This part is absolutely true. The person was healed almost immediately after. The person was healed almost immediately after. But their hidden rebellion towards God was eating them from the inside out. Now, there were consequences for this person. They lost all influence, all platform. There was bro a broken relationship with the family that, to my nod, still hasn't been restored. But that person got to experience the forgiveness of God when they confessed. They got to experience the healing of their body. They got another chance at a few more years of life. 
So again, I'm not saying that every uh, illness or every sickness that we experience is connected to sin that we've committed, but we can't ignore what the passage says, and we can't ignore the stories we hear, that sometimes, sometimes the secrets we keep or the ways we try to hide our rebellion from God eat us from the inside out. Eat us from the inside out. Now, the second thing is, why isn't everyone healed all the time? Because the passage seems to make it academic, right? That's the, pas- that's the picture the passage seems to paint. Well, the first thing I'll say is that this passage is not the whole counsel of Scripture. It's not everything that Scripture has to say about healing. And when we are developing an understanding, what we would call a doctrine, of something in the Bible, we can't take one passage and build all of it out of it, especially if there's more things that talk. There are other passages that talk about healing. There are other passages that talk about instances where people aren't healed. We are living in a time that some people call the already but the not yet, where we are seeing the breakthrough of the effects of Jesus' resurrection, his life-giving resurrection. We see the power of his resurrection. We saw it in his ministry as people were healed, as people were raised from the dead. And we hear stories from the church throughout history of those kinds of things happening. And yet we also live in a world that is still not fully restored. So while there is healing sometimes, there's not healing all the time. And there has never been a time in church history where everyone who was sick got healed. From the very beginning of, the ch- of church history, people have continued to pass from this world to the next. People have continued to succumb to illness and to injuries. That has always been true. But, but the foreshadowing that we get now is a taste of what's happening in the future, where there will be a day where everyone will be well forever. There will be a day where every illness will be eradicated where no one will be sick, where no one will be unwell, and we get glimpses of it in the here and now. Now, it's not a question that the passage discusses, but I think a great question to ask is why don't we see more of that? That's a great question to entertain. We're not going to answer it today, but that's a great question to entertain. Yet even when there's not healing in the moment, it is still worth it to turn to God because we still receive something that we need for our well-being. God always delivers something that we need for our well-being. It may not be what we think we need, and what we think we need might not come in the moment, but there will still be good that we can access when we turn to him. Now, in order for this idea to be worth it, in order for it be worth it to pursue God in every situation, particularly in the hard ones, particularly in illness, when there is no guarantee that we will be healed in the moment, in order for us to accept what he, or to access what he has to offer and to receive what we need, in order for that to be a worthwhile pursuit, a few things need to be true. So these are the assumptions I'm making. These are the assumptions that scripture is making. Here are the assumptions. For this to be worth it, God needs to be good. It's not worth pursuing God in every situation. It's not worth accessing what he has to offer and receiving from him what we need if God is not good. The second thing is God needs to be able to deliver good for us in any and every situation. There needs to be a good that we are able to receive that he can deliver in any and every situation. He needs to be able to deliver eternal good. Otherwise, it's not worth it. And 
He needs to be consistent. He needs to be consistent. Because we can't, uh, we can't engage with God in this way with full trust if we're wondering every day, what side of the bed did God get up on this morning? It's not worth it to turn to him in every situation if we might catch God on a bad day. He's got to be consistent in his goodness. And the scripture attests to that. And even James himself, at the beginning of his book, at the beginning of this letter, we talked about this the first week, says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God is the one who is good. He is the one who's consistent. He's the one who can deliver any good we need, and he delivers eternal and lasting good. That's why we get to access what he has to offer. That's why it's worth it to receive from him what we need. That's why it's worth it to turn to him in any and every situation. Now, so I want, I want you to take a moment. Are there any of those assumptions that you struggle with? Do you struggle with believing that God is good? Do you struggle with believing that God is consistent? Do you struggle with believing that God can deliver good in any and every situation? And do you, or do you struggle, or and, do you struggle with believing that God can deliver eternal and lasting good? It's okay to acknowledge that you struggle with that. Bring those struggles before the Lord. Bring those struggles to him. Because if you keep them inside, if you don't address them, if you don't engage with them, it will always limit your confidence in turning to God in every situation. You will turn away or you will ignore. Now, something that's assumed in the text but is more explicit by the end is important to mention because we live with different cultural values. It's not explicit at the beginning because it's assumed, but we, we live with different cultural values, and that is uh, that this council is not individualistic. But rather, the points James are making are that an integrated faith gets lived out in our connection to God alongside others. The whole passage is assuming this idea that this is happening alongside others. It's right at the beginning. We, we maybe even glance over it. It says, is anyone among you in trouble? And then it says, let them. It's assuming that this letter is being read in community. And it's inviting, anyone here in trouble? Then make some space. Let them share and pray. Is anyone happy among you? Make some space. Let them sing songs of praise. Call the elders if someone is sick and pray for healing. If you have sinned, confess to someone else. Do this in community. If someone has walked away, bring them back. This idea of integrating our faith gets lived out in community. And I want to acknowledge that that requires trust. It requires vulnerability. It requires a belief that the people that we are among would be willing to do the same with us and for us. And I want to acknowledge that church hasn't always been that kind of place. Now, we strive to make our church that kind of place, but I know that we fail sometimes too. So that if you've ever felt that church, or this church specifically, is not a place where you can be vulnerable, 
where you can trust, where you can believe that the people around you will trust you as well or will share their vulnerability with you as well, I am sorry. I am sorry. I want you to know that we're on our way to something better, that we're striving to be that kind of church all the time. And I want to invite you to try again. This is essential because we need each other. We need each other to deepen the integration of our faith. In our best moments, in our best moments, when we celebrate God's goodness with others, we get to encourage the community. Celebration, joy, gladness catches on. As you celebrate with others, as you are happy and and share God's goodness with others, it catches They remember things that they have to celebrate and be happy about and things break out in praise when we're at our lowest low and we share that, people lift us up. They encourage us. They support us. They are there for us. Sometimes they even have faith on our behalf when we find our faith lacking. People stand before God pleading for us when we don't have the words to pray. People offer us forgiveness. They speak the truth of God's forgiveness and their own to us. And people, we get to see people practice repentance and confession, what it looks like to turn to God. People don't let each other fall away. Sometimes we need people to pull us back when we're straying. I'm here today because people didn't let me fall away. I went to church sort of in my middle and high school years, so towards late high school, I stopped going to church. I couldn't. I was at a boarding school, and we traveled on Sundays, so I couldn't go to school. But in my time at church, I had met people, part of a network of churches, and when I got to college, some of those people were there. I was looking forward to living out the full life that college has to offer in independence and quote-unquote freedom. I considered myself a Christian, but I still wanted to taste and see all of that. But these people who knew me, they saw me, and they saw the path that I was headed down, and they were unwilling to let me fall away. So they chased after me. They made sure that I was with someone of their community at some point every day. I am not kidding you. Every day, Sunday through Saturday, someone was with me, inviting me to something, eating with me, doing something fun with me, inviting me to a prayer service, inviting me to a worship service, inviting me to a Bible study, inviting me to watch a movie. They did that over and over and over again until I came back to faith or came to faith for the first time, truly. They were unwilling to let me fall away. They covered a multitude of sins and saved me from the devastating consequences of the life I was planning on leading while I was in college. We help each other integrate our faith by praying for each other, praying with each other, and learning from each other's example. And the passage tells us there's potential. There's potential that we can access when we grow and and deepen together in this area. The passage tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is effective. It's powerful and effective. And it gives us the example of the prophet Elijah. It says the prophet Elijah, he prayed for rain to stop and rain stopped. And then after three and a half years, he prayed again for rain to start and rain started. And here's the real funny thing it says about Elijah. It says, James says, Elijah was a human being just like we are. Here's what James is saying. You can pray those kinds of prayers. Now, maybe not that particular prayer, But Elijah's saying, you can pray those kinds of prayers. What does it take to pray those kinds of prayers? 
Well, the theme that James has carried through his book about when prayers don't get answered, prayers don't get answered when there's not faith or belief that God can deliver and when we have the wrong motives. And he uses Elijah as an example to say, when you have faith and belief that God can deliver, and when you, are, when you are praying out of the right motives, prayer is so powerful that even the rains might stop. He's not saying you can pray that prayer, but he's saying these are the kinds of prayers you can pray. When we pray with each other, we grow in our integration of our faith. We grow in our conviction. We grow in our sense of what to pray and in our boldness of praying it. I'll give you an example. And I'll give you an example because it's not always a, growth, a, a straight growth trajectory. When I first became a Christian, I heard about this passage, and one of my friends from college said, um, you know, I was walking towards a class one day, and our campus was pretty spread out, and it started pouring rain. And I, and I, and I hid under an alcove, and I needed to get to class. I couldn't miss class. So I prayed that God would stop the rain, and God stopped the rain. And I heard that. And I was like, okay, makes sense. It's in the Bible. Someone did it. This must be a thing that Christians do. So a few weeks later, I was walking to class and it started pouring. And I hid under an alcove. And by the way, I'm a fairly new Christian at this point. But what I know at that point is I've heard a story in the Bible where someone prays for rain to stop. I heard a friend tell me, we can pray those prayers. So I said, all right, I'm gonna pray that prayer. So I prayed, God, I'm a freshman. These are my first types of classes I'm taking here. I really can't afford and don't want to to miss this class. But I really can't get this soaked on the way there. My books are going to get soaked. My notes are going to get soaked. There's just no way. This is a torrential downpour. I am not kidding. The rain stopped. And I was not shocked when it happened. Because I had seen it in the Bible. Someone had told me that they did it. And these were the kind of prayers that we were supposed to pray. I don't know at what point I lost the faith to pray those kinds of prayers, but I know I did. I don't know at what point I lost the boldness to pray those kinds of prayers, but I have. I think it's because we've gotten used to those stories being uh, far away from what we have access to, but we don't. We have access to those types of prayers. Maybe not that prayer, but those types of prayers. The types of prayers that expect and believe that God can intervene for good in any and every situation. And we grow in them. We learn them when we are with each other, integrating our faith, coming before the Lord, growing in our confidence and our sense and our conviction about what God wants us to pray and in our boldness to pray it. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to spring this on you, I know. Because the passage talks about praying together and it would be irresponsible for me to say, yes, the passage is about praying together. Go pray in your homes. We're going to pray together. So I'm going, to give you, uh, I'm going to give you instructions and then we're going to have some time to pray. And here are some like disclaimers before anyone gets nervous. If you don't feel like praying, don't pray. And if you don't feel like sharing anything, don't share. My expectation for this time, uh, which I'm going to divide us in groups, is that one person will share something and one person will pray. More people can share, more people can pray. But my expectation is just one person in each group to share something and one person, and it can be the same person, to pray in light of that. And here's the types of prayers that I'd like us to pray. What the passage says. If, something, if someone in your group has something good to share, they should share it. And then pray a prayer of praise. It doesn't have to be long, but a prayer of praise to God. 
If someone's going through a hard time and they share that, pray encouragement in a difficult situation. If someone is feeling unwell or is sick, pray for healing. And, and just as an added bonus, because the passage talks about being anointed with oil by the elders, we've got a couple of elders here. And if you raise your hand and want it, we'll come and anoint you with oil. That's what the passage says. I've got the last one with an asterisk, and here's why. When we divide up in groups, I have a sense that some of us are going to end up in groups with people we know and trust. And if you end up in that group and there's something you want to confess, feel free to do that. But I want to say this. The confession takes trust. Confession takes relationship. And I don't, want to feel, I don't want anyone to feel pressure to do that. But some of us are going to end up in groups where it's clear that it's a safe space to do that and that's what we need to do. So I want to invite you to do that and receive uh, forgiveness. Um, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to turn around, gather into groups. Gather into groups of like, seven to eight people, so it doesn't feel like, oh, there's only two of us and one of us needs to share. Um, gather in a larger group, and my hope is that someone in that group will be willing to share something good, something hard, a need for healing. And then have that person share, and then pray. Before you do that, just say each other, say your names, introduce yourselves, that's, you know, common courtesy, and then Pray. If you need healing, raise your hand. We'll come and anoint you if that's what you'd like. Uh, and then once we're done with that, I'll, you know, close us, and then we'll sing a song, and then we'll say goodbye. So um, go ahead. Turn around now. Gather in groups. I've got some people in the room who are, um, you know, who are comfortable praying and comfortable sharing. If your group, if you find out your group is full of a bunch of people who don't want to talk, raise your hand and let us know, and I'll send you a ringer. So around. Tell each other's names. Share one thing and then pray. We're just waiting for a couple of groups to finish praying. No rush, just... you're still praying, start to bring those prayers to a conclusion. Gracious God, thank you for the time and the gift you give us to pray with one another, to encourage each other as we pray, to lift each other up, to pray in faith, to help one another grow. Lord, help us integrate our faith as we pray, as we connect with you in every situation. Lord, may people here today receive what they need. In Jesus' name, amen.